And at this time, I want to transition to the message for today, uh, Deuteronomy 6, and uh, just tell you a little bit about how I arrived at this passage. I uh, have been studying Deuteronomy in my own private time, and uh, as Pastor Mike gave me the invitation to come and preach, I was really hoping I could hone in on a passage from Deuteronomy to share with you all. And then after being here for a week or two, I just started noticing all the children and what a blessing it is to see a church with so many young families. And so the, the text that came to mind uh, was this one, is uh, Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 25. And this, these sort of texts have really become a passion of mine over the last 10, 12 years. Particularly about 10 years ago, uh, after a friend of mine and I, we, we sat down at a coffee shop and he was just, we were having a conversation. I could tell he was steering in a certain direction. And finally he asked me, what do you think is your primary ministry? And he knew I was a very busy person. At that time, we had just had two young children, obviously uh, 10 years ago, so Brendan would have just been born. And uh, he's our second son. So we had two very young babies. And uh, I was on staff at the church part-time. I was working two jobs to try to pay off our school debt and, and get toward the mission field. And I was involved, uh, you know, as a part-time staff member at church. I had a lot of responsibilities. I was also teaching a life group. I was leading mission trips. I was very busy, too busy. And um, so this friend of mine asked me the question, uh, what is your primary ministry? So I, you know, thinking about it, it sounded like a weird question to me because all of the things that I was doing were important, right? I hadn't really thought about one being more important than the other. And I think I, I came out with the answer, uh, I think it's the life group. You know, making disciples is probably the most important thing I'm doing. And he just kind of paused and, and looked at me and he said, have you ever thought about your family as a ministry? Oh, you know, it's like, it just dug to my heart. I'm thinking, man, that's kind of a low blow. <laughs> it's kind of the way I felt. But at the same time, he, I, I was realizing that he was totally right. And he had totally detected that I was not ready uh, to be a dad, even though probably by then I had been a dad for close to two years. Uh, that was a big wake-up call to me. Um, and I'm really thankful for that guy who was willing to speak truth into my life. And he did it very gently, but very clearly, and just made it obvious to me that I really wasn't ready and I needed to wake up and accept this responsibility that God had graciously given me to be a father. And so really ever since that time, passages like this have really stuck out to me and caused me to realize this is a huge responsibility we have as parents to pass our faith, pass on a love for the one true God to the next generation. It's not easy. We, we can, probably all of us can think of a lot of failures in this. It's, it's probably rare. Um, this congregation may be a little different than others, but it's, it's becoming more and more rare for parents to faithfully pass on the faith, pass on a love for the one true God to the next generation. And so it's something I, I tried to make a lot of changes. Now, Katie will tell you it's, it's not been perfect. I have a long way to go. And busyness is just uh, the plague of my life. But I have really tried hard to make changes. And so passages like this have informed that. 
the, the New Testament passage that we just read uh, referred to, um, and I appreciate the brother who mentioned the ending. You know, we, we often think about the, the beginning of that, children obey your parents in the Lord. My, my kids have known that since they were about six months old, I think. But it's the end that we need to really think about as parents, which is not provoking these kids to wrath or to anger. And uh, then those two specific things that he says that parents need to do, the training and the discipline. And those are big responsibilities. When we fail to train our children, when we fail to discipline our children, that is creating a pattern in their lives where they don't exactly know what are the expectations, and it frustrates them. And they get into this kind of resentment period, which is that provoking to wrath or to, to anger. I don't think that that when Paul says that, he's talking about provoking them to anger in a particular moment, but I think he's talking about provoking them to a lifestyle of anger that eventually leads them to reject the gospel. And so as parents, we have to be intentional. We have to be careful about training and discipline. And so I think Moses gives us a great example of how to do that here in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 23-25. And before we get too deep into the particular passage, we need to just take a few minutes and set up the context of what's happening here in Deuteronomy. So let's just review. Uh, of course, by this point, um, we know this is the fifth book in the Bible. So thinking back to Exodus and uh, Numbers especially to, to get the context, God has now delivered Israel out of Egypt um, by this point in Deuteronomy. He has instructed Israel to enter the promised land by now. Uh, Israel rejected God's instructions to do that. Um, God has forbidden the Exodus generation then from entering the land because of their disobedience, their lack of trust. And then that put them into this state of wandering and waiting for 38, well, 40 years total. But after the time of Sinai and after uh, their rejection, it's been about 38 years that they've been wandering around in the desert and waiting. And um, God has at this point uh, led the Israelites to take over the land that is east of the Jordan River. And so it's not in the promised land, but just outside the promised land. Um, he, he's led them into victory in, in two huge battles against two very big kingdoms. King Og and King Sion were the ones they had just defeated. And so now <clears throat> in Deuteronomy what we have is Moses preparing them to enter the promised land. Remember, the generation that God rescued out of Israel is forbidden from entering the promised land, right? Because they rejected God. And Moses himself is even forbidden from entering the promised land. And so now they've, those who were responsible for the disobedience have passed away, and we have this new generation. The younger generation is getting ready to enter, but we have Moses. And what he's doing here in Deuteronomy is essentially like a Bible conference, Deuteronomy is a series of a few speeches, or you could call them messages or sermons. There's some elements of them are like sermons. And so what we have is Moses giving them a Bible conference that's aiming to prepare these people, this younger generation, to enter the promised land without their parents, without him. And he's a real shepherd. Moses is a real, not only a literal shepherd, he is a literal shepherd. He had spent a lot of time shepherding real sheep, but he's also a genuine shepherd of God's people. And he understood people. Through his life and leadership, he really began to understand how people think and how they act. 
He knows how easily people forget when God gives them orders or when God shows them his power, shows them his glory. And it's like the next minute they're like, why did you bring us out here in the wilderness? We're so hungry. We're so thirsty. It's like, didn't you just see what he did with that river? Like, what's, that was a few days ago. And yet they just easily forget again and again, just like us. We're no different. And Moses knew that, and he understood that this is going to be a challenge for Israel. Entering the promised land, a land that is full of idolatry, and we can't emphasize enough how evil the land is that they're about to go into. I mean, you know what God did to those people in the land. God sent Israel in to destroy them because of their wickedness. It's a wicked, wicked land, full of idolatry. And Moses knows that Israel is not immune to all that sin. He knows they'll be susceptible. And he's trying to prepare them. He's trying to warn them of all that stuff that they're going to face. And throughout the book of Deuteronomy, there's one main theme that Moses is trying to pound into the heads of the Israelites. And that theme is the Lord, Yahweh, alone is worthy of your complete devotion. Only the Lord is worthy of your complete devotion. So if you let anything else get in the way of, of your worship of the one true God, Yahweh, you're committing idolatry. And so that's why in Deuteronomy 6, the beginning of this chapter that we're looking at today, we have that famous command that, that Jesus identified as the great command. Remember when they were trying to trick him? I think at least three of the Gospels have this account where the lawyer came up and said, what's the greatest command, you know, or the great command, thinking that he's going to somehow trap Jesus. And Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. He quoted Deuteronomy 6. And that was ingenious. It, was, it, it totally shut up the, the lawyer because essentially if you obey that one command, then you're going to obey all the others. He, even, he identified the second one that goes along with it, love, the, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. But the great command is here in Deuteronomy 6. And it's in the context of all that idolatry I was just mentioning that Moses gives this command. And so remember the beginning of that, you can look there in, in chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He's emphasizing strongly, our Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, is one. All these other gods that you're going to encounter, that you've heard about, you've heard about other nations having other gods, they're not real. There's one true God, and he's ours, Yahweh. And you need to give all of your love, all of your heart, soul, and strength to him, to him alone. So what we're finding as we move through this, this chapter is Moses' explanation for how to make that happen, how to work that out. So immediately following the command, uh, he goes into in verses 10 through 19, lest any of you are sitting there thinking, oh, you know, our lives are very different now. We're not surrounded by idolatry. It's, you know, this isn't going to, you know, this problem is not our problem. No, it's our problem maybe even more, right? If you look through verses 10 through 19, he uses uh, descriptions of the land that they're about to go into. Moses is very worried about them um, because he realizes they're, they're at risk of being spoiled. Um, he, he identifies that they have ready-made cities that they're about to go in and, and take over. They're going to destroy these people, and their cities are going to be there, already set up with roads and 
Uh, he identifies them as having wells already dug, houses are already built, they're already going to have grapevines and olive trees that they can just partake of. And Moses, as, he, as he's telling them about this situation they're about to enter, he says, beware, so that you don't forget the Lord, Yahweh, who brought you into that land. Don't forget him. You're going to be tempted to forget him. And is, does that sound very different from the way we live today? I mean, we are spoiled. We have everything already set up for us by our previous generations. And we have far more than what these few things that Moses mentioned as conveniences that are going to lead them to get complacent and forget about their Lord. So let me just make sure we're all clear that, brothers and sisters, you and your children and your grandchildren are at high risk of committing idolatry. High risk. Maybe more than the Israelites. Um, so in case anyone's thinking, well, this passage may not apply to me so much, I, I hope you see now that it really does apply to all of us. Moses was worried that they would get spoiled. And as he identifies that risk, then he kind of looks forward to the future, to the time when they're in the land, and he pictures a small child asking his parent a question. And that's what we find there in verse 20. The question is, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? So you might notice that Moses has used three different terms referring to God's word. He often uses a group of words like this. Not always the exact same three, but three words that will refer to God's word in a group. And, and this is just a way of referring to the overall word of God, the covenant that God has made with Israel. Um, and by using this group of words, particularly he's emphasizing by using the word testimonies, that's kind of like the recording of the covenant relationship. Uh, by using this second word, um, statutes, it's the expectations that come with that agreement. And then uh, the third word, the rules or judgments, these are the consequences that come with either failure or success. So this kid has been exposed to all this, this lifestyle. He, no he understands his parents expect some certain um, ways of life, and he is struggling to understand why. He's looking at the world around him and saying, why do I have to live like this? Why do I have to be different from the, the children around me? And really, we can, we can simplify his question to that one word, why, right? He's looking at his parents and saying, why? Why are we like this? And so I, I, I think all of us have heard our children asking the same question, why? Uh, why does the world not revolve around me? Why do I have to obey my parents? Why do, why do we not watch the same movies as our friends watch? Uh, why do we have to go to church every Sunday even though our friends and family don't? And as parents, we, we need to be ready to answer that question. Genuinely, not just with trite little answers, but we need to be able to genuinely talk through these things with our kids. If we don't, then we're failing that responsibility that God identified back in uh, the verses we read earlier, Ephesians 6, uh, especially 3 and 4. The responsibility is for the parent to train and discipline. Notice it doesn't say um, when, when your son asks the pastor, right? Does your Bible say that in verse 20? When your son asks the Sunday school teacher, no. no. When your son asks the Bible professor at his college, no. It says when your son asks you, right? That's, that's important for us to recognize. And this idea goes all the way back to the beginning of chapter 6 when he identified that big, big command, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. 
Then he immediately follows by talking about what the life uh, of a home, of a godly home will look like and how the parents are always talking with the children while they're eating, while they're walking by the way. All these things there talking about the Lord. It's the responsibility of the parents to pass on the faith to the next generation. We can't outsource. That is not acceptable to outsource the spiritual upbringing of our children to the church. Not a choice. Hopefully you have a good church. I see here you do. I I hope all of you have thought carefully about the church that you are uh, putting your children in and, and the kind of teaching you're exposing them to. That's part of being a good parent and part of their spiritual upbringing, but you are primarily responsible for them. And so we cannot outsource, and we cannot use an excuse like, well, I don't know enough. That, that's not an option here. It's, you need to learn. You need to understand. You have a responsibility to study and be prepared to answer these kind of questions. So in the process of answering this question, Moses gives three features to tell the next generation uh, about the Lord. Okay, And so as we seek to be prepared to answer this question, I think Moses has given us a good pattern here to follow and to keep in mind, particularly as we're spending time telling our children Bible stories. Um, I think Moses has given a great pattern for how to have a family devotion. All right, so let's think through that as we um, look through the rest of these verses, 21 through 25. In verses 21 through 23, Um, Moses is modeling just telling your children about the Lord's reputation. And I'll explain that a little more in detail in a moment. But uh, tell your children about the Lord's reputation. And then in verses 24a and 25b, he kind of mixes up these next two points. I mean, you know, he did it just fine, but I have mixed it up, I'll say. Verses 24a and 25b are kind of like the requirements that the Lord has given us. So tell your children about the Lord's requirements. And then uh, the last part of verse 24 and the first part of verse 25 are tell your children about the Lord's response. After you have obeyed, after you have fulfilled the requirement, then what does the Lord do? Okay, so that's the Lord's response. So let's look a little more carefully at uh, verses 21 through 23. Before answering the child's question directly, um, Moses decides to model this idea of, laying a foundation before he answers the question directly. Okay, so kids, if you have parents that when you ask them a question, if they start telling you something else first, don't think that they're ignoring your question. That, that's probably a sign that you have a good parent who's trying to build a foundation to give you your, your answer eventually. Um, and so listen to them. If you can be patient and listen to the whole answer, then you'll learn a lot more. That means you have a good parent, so listen carefully. Now, before answering the question, Moses explains a portion of Israel's history in a nutshell. And the way he tells the story highlights God's glory. So I hope you you see that with me here. The first thing he shows us is the need for the Lord's rescue. So as he starts explaining the reputation of this God who has given them the commands, he starts by explaining that Israel needed to be rescued. The text says, we were slaves, uh, or we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. So as we tell the, the children in our lives, so this, this is good for grandparents, for uncles, aunts, everyone who has a child in their life, so I think that would include all of you. As we tell children stories, we need to be clear about the state of mankind, that when we, when we look through these stories in the Old Testament, 
the characters, even though they may be the protagonist, even though they may be the hero in a sense, they are not the ultimate hero of the story. Um, we are all in a state of need of rescue. Okay, And so as we share stories, we need to be clear about that. And Moses is very clear that Israel was in need here. They were in need of God's rescue. And so just like Israel was stuck in Egypt, uh, we are all stuck in slavery to sin. All right, Israel needed God, and uh, in the same way, we need God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the, uh, the glory of God. Um, we, uh, let me skip down here a little bit. Um, many, many people believe they're not actually in this state of need. Many people feel like uh, they're not so bad. You know, morally, they're pretty good people. They are, uh, they have a good life. Uh, they're kind of like this, what Moses described in verses 10 through 19. Uh, they look around, they have a house, they have food constantly, they have clothes, uh, they don't have debt, you know. So a lot of people, when they think about life, they don't really see their need for God, all right? And so if you're in a, if, if you are a home that is fairly blessed, your children may be at high risk of not really seeing the need for God. You know, if you're a pretty good home, two parents, uh, you know, dad has decent job, mom has decent job, maybe even two, uh, the kid may have a hard time recognizing he has a need for anything, right? Katie and I, uh, we led a, a mission trip to Argentina back before we went to Myanmar. Um, and we were getting ready to, to go on the trip, and we had a Skype call with the, the missionary that was down there who was going to be hosting us. And I, really, I remember he really honed in on this. He said, uh, well, we were asking him. We were asking him, what can we do to prepare to really teach the gospel or explain the gospel clearly to these people in your context. And in Argentina, he's surrounded by Catholics, particularly Catholics who just have the idea of thinking that uh, they're okay as long as they uh, do the, the good works that eventually, um, you know, it'll be up to God when they get there uh, before him at his throne uh, to decide whether they go into heaven or not. He said, most of them don't really see that they have the need for God. And so he said, the, the thing that you can start with and study and how, how to explain clearly is that they have a need. If you can convince them that they have a need, then they'll listen to your solution. All right? And so that's something we need to do with our kids. We have to be clear with them that they have a need and that their need is Christ. All right? And so this is something, parents, that there are many opportunities we can do in life, but one of the most strategic opportunities is during discipline times. You know, when a child has done something wrong, they know they've done something wrong, uh, we can be very intentional about helping them in that moment to recognize, look, we are all sinners, and we need Christ. He is the solution to the problem, all right? So Moses sets up the fact that we have a need before he offers the solution, all right? But then in verse 21b, he quickly acknowledges God as the solution, all right? So first we saw the need for the Lord's rescue. Now we see the provision of the Lord's rescue, Moses reveals God as the great rescuer. Moses is not the hero of the story. God is. Only the one true God had the power to save Israel from the mighty Egyptians. And we must present the Lord in the same way, the one who can fulfill our deepest spiritual needs. When we're telling our children the stories of the Bible, we can't confuse who is the real hero. Okay, So let's not make Gideon the hero. Let's not make Samson the hero. Let's not make David the hero of the stories. As we explain these beautiful stories that have really great points, 
let's make sure that our children see God's role in the stories. All right, and then Moses explains the power of the Lord's rescue quickly as he goes into verse 22. Uh, verse 22 says, uh, And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. All right, man, he's really emphasizing the power of the Lord in this section. He's careful to remind them of how the Lord rescued them. Not just that he rescued them, but he rescued them with all these mighty uh, wonders, great and grievous, all right? So in doing so, Moses is modeling how God's people should highlight God's glory. It wasn't by luck or chance that the Lord managed to get Israel out of Egypt. It was a plan that he carefully executed with amazing, miraculous power. So as we're telling our children these stories about the Lord, you know, these stories include glimpses of God's glory. And we need to be careful to pull those glimpses out and highlight them and show the children God's glory in the midst of these stories. And then the last thing that Moses highlights in verse 23 is the purpose of the Lord's rescue. And he brought us out from there. That, here's the purpose word, that. That he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. All right, so this is the purpose of the Lord's rescue. In all of this, God was aiming toward a goal. And uh, Moses models for God's people the importance of explaining that, if possible. We can't always understand exactly what God has in mind, but in many cases we can. It's revealed here. If we study carefully, we can see God's purposes. And the main purpose here is God, he pursues his glory. And he, if he makes a promise, he intends to keep it. And that's what he's doing here. He he rescued Israel because he had promised to give them the land, and he intended to fulfill that promise. And so, as best we can, parents need to explain God's purpose, all right? And in this case, it's certainly possible. So what does this do, I, this, whole, this whole point, telling our children about the Lord's reputation? What does it do for our children? Well, understanding the Lord's reputation helps children understand why God is trustworthy in the first place, okay? Remember, the question was, what is the meaning of all this? Well, before you can really answer that, a parent needs to help the child understand who is this God that we're serving anyway? Why is he worthy of my trust? Why is he worthy of my obedience? And that's what Moses has done in verses 21, 22, and 23. He set God up as the God who's worthy of our trust. All right? So then in uh, the second section here, we're going to talk about telling them about the Lord's requirements. So we've told them about the Lord's reputation, but now what is it that he wants from us? What is the Lord's requirement? Well, God requires obedience. And obedience is the way that people express their love to God. Okay, back in the beginning of chapter 6, he identifies the love of God as the chief commandment. Love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, and strength. That is how we express our love for him is through obedience to him, okay? Obedience is the outworking of a life that loves God with all the heart, soul, and might. Now, the words that Moses uses to describe how we obey are really important here. We really need to take a moment and hone in on uh, just a few of these words that he uses as he describes. Now, the child already knows, back in verse 20, he already knows there's a requirement uh, to obey in a sense, right? He, he has asked, why are we having to obey. He's probably thinking at this point, uh, I know I'm supposed to obey. Why? Right? But Moses wants to take a, an opportunity to explain how to obey. 
right? So before the, the child can really accept the, the full answer to why we obey, Moses uses several words that help the child understand what is exactly this requirement of obedience. And the first word I want to look at is the word all there in verse 24. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes. Okay, so this is the extent of the obedience God expects from us. Okay, he expects us to obey all that he says. All right, <clears throat> we don't get to choose which commands we want to obey and which commands we want to reject. Um, if God has set something as an expectation, he expects us to obey it completely. Uh, James says it in, in James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. Of course, James's point is that we should not try to reach heaven through obedience to the law. Instead, James wants his readers to understand the relationship between faith and action. Let me be clear. This can be a very confusing concept, but God does expect complete obedience, right? And the law is the standard of perfection, okay? And perfection is the requirement for entering into eternity with God. And yet, God knows our predicament. He knows our weakness. And that's why he made a plan to rescue mankind. Uh, he sent his son, Jesus, to live a perfect life, to offer himself in our place, and he made it possible to escape the doom of eternal punishment for those who trust in him, all right? And as Pastor Mark pointed out in Sunday school, it's important when we proclaim this to point out that we're not serving a dead God. We're not serving a guy that has a tomb somewhere that we can go and you know, bow down to in an idolatrous fashion. No, Jesus rose from the dead. The God, Jesus is Yahweh, okay? So the same God that Moses is talking about is the God that we serve and we are aiming to go spend forever worshiping, all right? And so God made a way for us to reach that level of perfection through Jesus Christ. James goes on to say that a man is justified uh, by works and not by faith alone. That can also be kind of confusing. Um, of course, James knew that justification is by faith alone, but what James is teaching in James chapter 2 is very similar to what Moses is teaching here in Deuteronomy 6. Because both of these authors and all the authors of Scripture know that true faith is the kind of faith that has works that come along with it. Those works are evidence of the faith that is truly there in the person's heart. So um, James refers, when he's defending that point, that we're justified by works and not by faith alone, uh, James, uh, he knows that it's by faith, but he's saying it has to have action. And he points back to Abraham as an example of one who had action, and that action showed his belief, and his belief in, in Genesis 15, 6 is said to have been counted to him as righteousness. The standard has always been perfection, but God has provided a way through Jesus for us to be able to be counted as perfect, even though in a practical sense, we're not perfect. When we express trust to him through obedience, God takes Christ's righteousness and places it on our account and makes us in his sight perfect. And that's a beautiful thing. Now, it's complicated when we're looking at Moses telling them to obey the law. Well, what does that mean? Well, again, the law is really the standard of perfection. The law was actually a guide, a tutor, to lead people to understand their need for God's grace. 
even our Old Testament brothers and sisters, they needed God's grace. And they were, like Abraham, saved through faith in God. But it was particularly the kind of faith that was evidenced in action, right? And so when Moses says, uh, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, here in a minute you're going to see that that's going to be righteousness for them? Yes, because the obedience is their expression of trust. All right, can't get too, too much further into that for now. So let's go to the next word that he uses that expresses something we need to convey about how we obey. And that is the word fear that occurs there. All right. And so when we obey, it ought to be out of a sense of complete respect for our authority. And so here we'll call this the attitude of the obedience. Uh, fear of God is an indication that we understand who he is. Only this submissive attitude is acceptable for the, before the holy God who created us. Um, parents need to model through the familial relationship between a parent and child what respect is and what it means to fear properly and in a healthy way, fear authority. Uh, Ephesians 6, 1 and 2 talks about the responsibility for the children to obey their parents. As parents, we need to set up that microcosm of what it really means ultimately for them to respect their chief authority, which is God, the one over the entire universe. As parents, we get the privilege of teaching that uh, by expecting our children to respect us. But in the process, we have to be careful not to set ourselves up as equals with God. We have to be careful to show ourselves as kind of an under-shepherd, right? So that when we demand respect, at the same time we're telling the children, look, I am your authority because God has given me that authority. And I will sin. I, I will disappoint you at some point. But you need to understand, I'm doing my best to be your authority, and I expect you to respect me because God himself has given me this responsibility, and I respect him. Does that make sense? So we have the privilege of modeling what a respecting relationship looks like in the family. And uh, if we do it well, then children will get the idea of what it means to be submissive to an almighty authority. If we fail in our families to establish what respect is, then children will never understand what it means to fear the Almighty God. This doesn't mean we never question God, but it means that when we do question Him, it's respectfully and in the course of our obedience. You know, we have a rule in our house that kids can, our kids can question us. If I say something they don't agree with or they aren't confused about, I say, you can question me all you want as long as you're questioning while you're obeying, you know? And you know, that's, that's the process. And I think that's the attitude we should have with God is, you know, we can question him in a healthy way that is respectful, but we better be obeying in the process. All right. So uh, the next part is the intention of the obedience. The intention of the obedience. There's a few words here in verse 25. <clears throat> it, was, it will be righteous for us if we are careful. These are the words I want to highlight. Are careful. If we are careful to do all this commandment. All right. And so there's an intention here. We, it doesn't happen haphazardly, right? Obedience has to be premeditated. Um, we don't automatically do right just because we hear the right thing to do. Uh, Paul makes reference to this. James makes reference to this. There's such a thing as a hearer of the word who doesn't actually do it, right? And we shouldn't be that kind. We need to be careful to hear it, to understand it, and then to execute it, right? And that's something that takes planning. Making good choices is the result of planning to do what is right. 
All right, we need to study God's word. We need to know God's word. Um, we need to inform ourselves about the biblical point of view regarding tough issues. And that might mean that at certain times we're taking a stand for what is right in a world that wants us to fail. But being careful to do God's word is something that we do intentionally, not something that just happens, all right? Important part of obedience. Also in verse 25, um, he says to do that before the Lord our God, all right? So I'm calling this part the integrity <clears throat> of the obedience, all right? The big mistake that many who fail make is that they are trying to please men rather than God. Like Ananias and Sapphira, they made a choice to do a generous thing, but <clears throat> they were trying to impress men instead of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. They chose to sell some of their property, right? <clears throat> and then they were going to give the money to the church. Can I get a drink of water? <clears throat> But when they did this, they led the church to believe that they were giving more than they really were. And God knew. It, it appeared on the outside to many that they were being obedient, maybe even generous beyond the expectation. And yet, God knew. God knew their heart. And he revealed that to Peter. And then ultimately, God took their lives because they were not obedient before him. He knew the truth. And so this is a lesson to us to not be focused on what men think of us, but to be focused on what the Lord thinks of us and whether or not we're obeying his commands in his presence when no one else is looking. Okay, so our obedience needs to have integrity. It needs to be before the Lord. And then the final thing we want to say about the Lord's requirement, what is true obedience, is that it's precise. Okay, the precision of obedience. And this we see in the phrase at the very end of the text, as he has commanded us, okay? <clears throat> Sometimes we can be sloppy in our obedience, right? Like when your mom says to clean your room, sometimes children are, uh-oh, uh now we're in trouble. Sometimes children are uh, shoving things under their, their bed, shoving things in the closet, um, and they know very well what mom went, meant when she said to clean their room. But this isn't my children, by the way, but other children, right, guys? So mom meant something very specific, and yet the child understands it as if mom walks in and doesn't see all of these things all over my floor, then I have obeyed, right? But that's not true obedience. God expects us, when he gives us a command, to obey precisely, all right? Think about Moses and uh, the situation in Numbers chapter 20, when the Israelites were thirsty again, and why, like me right now, thank you. <clears throat> I'm whining like the Israelites. They were whining again because they were thirsty and hungry, and they were accusing Moses of irresponsibly taking them out of Egypt. And so Moses and Aaron went before God, and uh, they, they asked God what to do. God said, take the rod, go, and before the people... Tell the rock, the word was tell, tell the rock to give forth its water, right? And so what did Moses do? He hit the rock. Is that a big deal? Well, it was a big deal to God. He precisely told him to tell the rock. God had a purpose for that. 
And Moses didn't obey precisely as God commanded. He kind of interpreted it as he wanted. He had, on a previous occasion, he had hit the rock, so why can't he just hit the rock now? That's maybe what he was thinking, I don't know. But he didn't obey the Lord precisely, and there was a severe consequence. God forbade him from entering the promised land because of that one little action of hitting that rock instead of telling the rock. All right? And so God expects us to obey precisely. All right? We need to be careful to obey as God has said it. We cannot change his command. We cannot make it up uh, or, or approximately obey him. We need to obey precisely. All right, where are we? <clears throat> All right, we are going in now. So that is the precision of the obedience as he has commanded. Finally, um, as we go into point three, again, that whole section, uh, uh, the second section that I, I want to get across to you is this is the Lord's requirement. Moses wanted to make sure that parents communicate to their children what is the real requirement? What does obedience really mean? All right? The child knows that there are some expectations, but he may not understand the extent of the expectations. He may not understand how precise God wants him to obey. And so Moses wants parents to teach in a very precise way how to obey. All right? And in so doing, then a child begins to understand how to express trust in God. So in the first part of this, this little passage, uh, Moses has expressed uh, God's worthiness of our trust. Right? He's, he's, by talking about the Lord's reputation, he's established that God is worthy of our trust. The second part of the, the message here is that uh, he wants the children to know how to express that trust in the Lord. Okay? And so now as we go into point three, we see... Uh, how the Lord will respond when we do trust, okay? So tell your children about the Lord's response, what God will do, what promises he makes, all right? And so uh, the first thing we want to look at here is that God will grant well-being to his people for our good always, right? Here is where Moses is finally getting at the answer to the kid's question. Um, God will grant well-being to his people, this isn't prosperity gospel. We're not suggesting that God always responds by making us rich or healthy. But we can safely say that everything God does is for our good. We don't always understand what he's protecting us from. We don't always understand what he's preparing us for. But if we're expressing our love to him through obedience, we can rest in him knowing that whatever he's doing, it's for our good. Secondly, God will grant life to his people. All right, that he might preserve us alive, it says there. Uh, that is <clears throat> in the last part of verse 24, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. He points to their very situation. He says, look at us. You know, We were in Egypt. We've been struggling for the last 40 years, but we're alive. And God did that intentionally. It seems that Moses is primarily focusing on this earthly life in this phrase. God has a purpose for leaving us here. On this earth, he's chosen to communicate his message to the world through his people. Today, we as the church get the privilege of delivering that message to the world. God does not save people apart from the proclamation of his word being revealed through his church, all right? Um, in some way or another, you know, people can read the Bible, but a church member, somebody from God's church is delivering that Bible to someone to get saved. So God uses us, all right? And if we weren't here, uh, he, he wouldn't be able to use the plan that he's put in place. So we should long for this life, 
We should long to have our lives preserved. And there's nothing wrong with wanting life here on earth, but the purpose for it has to be for serving the Lord. All right? And yet we'll always long for our heavenly home. The last part of this I want to point out is that uh, God will grant uh, right standing. So God will grant well-being. God will grant life to his people. And God will grant life, uh, sorry, right standing to his people. It will be righteousness for us. Thinking back to God's standard for obedience, the requirement really, really is perfection. Israel had a need to be restored to a right standing before God. God provided them the standard of perfection in the law, but thankfully Jesus fulfilled the law. And I think uh, you guys will be looking at that very soon as you continue to work through Matthew 5. Um, though the standard of perfection remains the law, we're not judged by it, thankfully. All right, By God's grace in Galatians 5, we can read, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Our trust in God triggers a real transaction where Christ's righteousness becomes ours. And God grants that right standing to us when we respond to him with obedience, because that obedience is an indication of our trust in him. All right? and that's what Moses is promising to the Israelites, that's what God has promised to us today as well. Obedience is evidence of trust. Well, as we just look back through these three sections that we've highlighted in Moses' answer to this young child, I hope that you see how it's possible to pass on a love for the one true God uh, by following this pattern. You know, as we interact with our children, if we can get into their minds a sense of who is the one true God, who is this God who's commanding us to do things. If we can get into their minds the reputation of our God, and if we can get into their minds what it is he expects from them, what is the Lord's requirement, then they're going to be trained. They'll, they'll understand the boundaries. They'll understand what it is God expects from them. And then if we can tell them faithfully what are the promises, what does God do for us when we do respond to him the way he asks us to, um, then they have hope. They have hope of eternal life in Christ. Um, this is a regular pattern that we can follow time after time as we sit down and interact with our children. And so I hope that uh, as you've looked at this, it's given you a very clear picture of why it's worth uh, spending this time with the children and why it's worth helping them, not, not just wanting them to go, grow up and be church members, but wanting them to grow up and be lovers of the one true God, lovers with all their heart, with all their soul, and with all their strength. Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. Your word is so rich. There's so much here that we can't even cover. Uh, and uh, I pray that you would use, though, what we've talked about this morning to spark some excitement in us, to... Um, challenge us to understand this great responsibility that it is to pass on the faith uh, to the next generation, to pass on a faith that is very specifically a love for you, a love that is displayed through our obedience, uh, a love that is genuine, a love that translates into saving faith uh, for our children. And so I do pray for all the parents here, this is a great responsibility that we all have. I pray that you'd strengthen us, help us to understand our own weakness and inability to do this effectively apart from the grace of God. I pray you would give us that grace. Fill us with your spirit as we attempt to go through this 
and raise up children who will be mighty servants for you. We love you and trust all this um, in Christ's name. Amen.